Good morning. It's great to be here. It is a, a beautiful day to be worshiping the Lord together. Every day is a beautiful day to worship the Lord, but uh, I think when the sun's shining and we get up and the weather's like this, it's just that much easier, and uh, it's been, been great to worship together with you. Uh, this, uh, this morning, I, there's a, a number of things that uh, have already been brought to our attention in regards to the ongoing ministry at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp and, and uh, some other things that have been happening. Uh, there was a group of us also who were at uh, the Leadership Summit again this, uh, just this past week, and we heard some, some great, great teaching and, and speakers there. Um, I can't relay all of it to you, but uh, there's, there's some things that are, of course, going to come out in, the, in the, uh, the pudding, so to speak. And uh, uh, I, I feel very inspired from many of the speakers that I heard, and I'm sure some of that's going to come out in the sermon this morning. Uh, I also just want to acknowledge that we're, we're at um, an anniversary of sorts uh, as well, and, and I see John Wolfe is here this morning, and to acknowledge that, that it was yesterday a year ago that, that Ashley and Jillian and Caden um, were, were taken, and uh, we, we just want to acknowledge that and uh, know that it's a difficult time for you and the family, and we're praying for you. I know that I personally have been been praying for for Henry specifically for the weeks as the the uh, calendar turned over to August. I couldn't help but find my own thoughts going back to last summer, and uh, and it was on my on my mind a lot yesterday. And so, uh, just want to remember and acknowledge that, and pray for the family as well as as it's still something that is very fresh. So let's remember them in prayer and in our thoughts and and encouragement as well. Uh, we're thinking of you. Uh, there's there's many other things that uh, I'm sure um, would would bear being uh, uh, shared this morning. If there's any other prayer requests, uh, please feel free to to share them. If you have any other items this morning, I'd like to. If you have an opportunity, um, want to have an opportunity, uh, please feel free to share any other prayer items this morning. Does anyone have anything they'd like to share? <coughs> Anyone? Okay. Okay. Thanks for sharing that, Chelsea. Uh, for those who maybe didn't hear or aren't aware, um, uh, Chelsea's uh, nephew. Um, Rocky and Shauna's granddaughter. That would be uh, Michelle's Michelle's uh, son, and his name's Richard Jr. I believe. Richard Jr. or Richard the Third or something like that. But anyways, he uh, was born premature with his. Um, I, I believe his intestines were external when he was born, so they had to operate to bring them back in. And uh, the, the initial operation went well, and then there was complications this past week where things were touch and go. But as Chelsea just shared, that he is doing way better, and they're just praising God for an answer to prayer that he is back in the clear and doing well. So, yeah, so we just want to thank the Lord for that as well. Anyone else have anything they want to share this morning? If not, let's unite our hearts in prayer. Would you bow with me and let's turn to the Lord? Heavenly Father, thank you so much 
for who you are, that you are a good God, that you are a God who is characterized by love. You are a God of love, and you have again and again shown your love to us. Even when it's undeserved, you again and again pour it out, and we thank you. We give you our our praise and our adoration for that. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you have seen fit to answer prayer on behalf of of Richard uh, Jr. III, and we just thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for uh, that little life, and we know that you have a plan for his life, uh, that you have... uh, all the days written out for him in your book, and we just thank you for that. And we just pray according to your will that you would bless him and uh, that you would cause his body to grow, grow strong and healthy. And we pray, Lord, that you would also guide his steps, that he would grow to know you and to love you and serve you with his life. We thank you as well, Lord, for your continued presence in walking with those who travel through difficult times and we think of the Wolf family. We thank, Lord, of what... We all had to walk through a year ago at this time, and there is a a sense again, Lord, of that loss when we go through times like this, and we remember, and yet, Lord, we also want to remember your hand of goodness and your hand of mercy as we walk through that valley of the shadow of death, and that, Lord, even as we recall the loss, we also recall your grace and your incredible, incredible strength that you give to those who call upon you. And we just thank you for that on behalf of Henry, that you, en- you enabled him, Lord, to not be crushed by something that is more than any man should have to bear. And you lifted him up, and you gave him a place to stand. And we just give you the thanks for that again this morning. We pray that you would continue to be with him, especially, Lord, in, in, in this time. Lord, we also want to pray for anyone else who is thinking of anniversaries of loved ones that they've lost, perhaps a spouse. And Lord, even though for for others it may seem like a a distant event in the past, yet Lord, for those who have lost a spouse, the, the loss is always there every morning when they get up and that loved one is no longer there. And so Lord, for this and often the feelings of loneliness that can accompany it, we just pray for your presence and your grace to be with those who have lost their loved one, um, on a daily basis, Lord, be with them and help us to also remember them and not forget that they too have have suffered loss. We pray, Lord, that as we think of these things, you would turn our hearts to the blessed hope that we have, that those who have fallen asleep in you have not fallen asleep in vain or have been lost from us forever, but that we will see them again, and that in your glorious kingdom there is a place of perfect rest where all the tears have been shed and wiped away and never to be shed again. And we thank you that, Lord, we have that hope yet in front of us. And so bless our hearts with that hope this morning. Lord, we also want to lift up Turtle Mountain Bible Camp and the tremendous ministry happening there. Thank you for the good reports we have already heard. And we pray, Lord, for continued strength and and, uh, supplying of every need that they have today and for this week. We pray, Lord, that through it you will continue to lead young lives to yourself and build up your kingdom. That lives can not only be be, uh, made a little bit better, Lord, but that lives can be changed completely and radically. That they reach salvation and to find a new place in your kingdom. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would bring young lives to yourself and salvation even this week. Thank you that we can be a part of it. And now I pray, Lord, that... As we, your church, are gathered here, we also want to pray for the church in this community 
And we just pray, Lord, that all of us, as your people, as we lift up your praise, and as we hear from your word, that you would unite us in purpose and heart. Lord, we pray that together we would, we would strive to build your kingdom in this place until you come or you call us home. Help us to be faithful to this end. Thank you, Lord, that you want to bless us and challenge us with your word this morning. So give us hearts to receive, ears to hear what you have for us. I pray that you'd speak through me, your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're entering part two in our series entitled Unmerited Favor. The story is told about a small country church where the pastor had called a special meeting of the congregation. The main topic of the meeting was to approve the purchase of a brand new chandelier. After some discussion for and against, an old farmer finally stood up and said, Buying a new chandelier may seem like a good idea to you, but I'm against it for three reasons. First of all, it's too expensive and we can't afford it. Second of all, what we really need in this church is a new light fixture. And third, we don't have anyone who knows how to play one anyways. Do we have any chandelier players here this morning? There's probably a few in the back who could swing from a chandelier. (laughs) If you gave them the opportunity, I'm sure they would. I think what this humorous little story demonstrates is that sometimes even the most well-intentioned people can misunderstand something and just get it wrong. They're using the same language or the same words as everyone else, but what they understand it to be is something else entirely different. And so while this old farmer was using the same word as everyone else, he actually meant something different by it. Well, I believe the same thing can happen within the church as well. We sometimes use the big and powerful words of the faith, sometimes without even really understanding what they are or mean. You know, those big words like sanctification, righteousness, propitiation, or justification. You ever like using words like that? Uh, uh, Maybe you've tried throwing this one out before in casual conversation. You know, you're in the coffee shop and you you turn to someone and ask, so how's your sanctification coming along these days? (laughs) Try that one sometime. See how it goes. Just see how they respond, you know. Give that one a go. Well, we're going to acknowledge this morning that big words like that, sometimes even mature Christians will struggle a little bit to give the definition of what those words mean. There is one word that we Christians, all Christians use all the time, and we're pretty sure, in fact, we're certain that we know exactly what it means. And that little word is grace. Grace. We throw it around all the time, don't we? But for the grace of God, there go I. Oh, His grace is wonderful. His grace is free. His grace is amazing. His grace, His grace, His grace. And we throw it around all the time, and we know, we're certain we know exactly what it means. Now, in part one of this series, Unmerited Favor, I told you that God's grace is free, completely unbiased, annoyingly persistent, extravagantly generous, free-flowing, limitless, and completely undeserved. Now, all of those things are true, entirely true. 
But if we're not extremely cautious, something insidious, something extremely dangerous can sneak into our fundamental view of God's grace. Now, what could that possibly be? Let's think about it for a moment. In my experience, something that is free and unlimited, okay, just think about this, in your experience, something that is free and unlimited, how do you think about it? Free and unlimited. Well, in my life experience, something that is free and unlimited, I can't help but think of as cheap. Something to be taken advantage of. Let me give you an example. Here in Killarney, we can go behind the co-op service station and get free air. Right? Free air. It's, there, there's no coin dispenser, no nothing. You just go up and push that button and grab the hose and fill your tires. It's free. Free air. And you know what? I have to admit this, you know, being a pure-blooded Mennonite, there's nothing that gives me more of a rush than the word free you know, don't you just love that word? You, you just, just, your eyes drawn to it. You see the word free and you just, oh, what's that? We just can't help it. You know, there's that old joke about the Mennonite dilemma. I won't say what it is, but I think most of you have heard it. <laughs> free. There's something about that word. So here in Clarny, we are blessed to still have free air. But because it's free and unlimited... I'll tell you this much, I take it completely for granted. I take it so for granted to the point that this past while, our second car, the Grand Am, that we mostly use for running errands around town, well, it's had a slow leak in one of the tires. The, the bead on the, the tire hadn't set properly, and so it's one of those slow, seeping leaks that doesn't go down that rapidly, but it, but it still goes down. And so every week or two, I stop by the co-op free air station, and I top her up. And I go off again. And two weeks later, I go by and I top it up again. Free air. Now, I can guarantee you that if co-op suddenly put in a coin-op on their machine tire, or on their air uh, pump, if there was suddenly a coin dispenser on there, I can guarantee you that my tire would get fixed in a real hurry. <laughs> but the air is free. It's unlimited. And so why get it fixed? Of course, I know that in the long run, it's not good for the tire to constantly be going down in air pressure and driving it that way. It's out of balance with the rest of the tires and so on and so forth. I know that it's not good for the tire, but what pure-blooded Mennonite can resist the lure of free and unlimited air? And I can only assume that I've probably got some Dutch-Ukrainian ancestry in there as well. <laughs> I'm sure some of you can identify. But what happens if we unwittingly or subconsciously apply that same way of thinking towards God's grace? It's free and unlimited. Therefore, it's something cheap, something to be taken advantage of. Well, the Apostle Paul addressed this issue in the book of Romans, chapter 6 and verse 1. He asked this question, familiar question that we've all heard before. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, you may recall that the chapter earlier, just a few verses ahead of this, the thoughts tie together, that in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul had just declared, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So apparently, 
What Paul is addressing is that the Romans were rationalizing that if salvation is a free and unlimited gift of grace, then think about this, try to follow along, then couldn't someone go on sinning as much as they please, and in fact, by doing so, wouldn't they actually be displaying God's grace all the more? Because if if they were just living good lives and, and they weren't needing God's grace, well, then God's grace wouldn't be on display But if they went on sinning and needing God's grace constantly, well, that would just show the world how gracious God really is. Think about it. It's weird to us, and yet the rationale is sound, isn't it? They thought that by doing this, they were displaying God's grace. It was a great plan. So they could just go on sinning, so that God's grace would be on full display. There's a story of a man who's planning a trip to Las Vegas. And he called ahead to talk to the pastor of a church there. He informed the pastor of his planned trip and asked what time their Sunday worship service would begin. To which the pastor replied, Well, this is certainly refreshing. Most people who take a trip to Old Sin City aren't planning on attending church. Oh, don't get me wrong, the man answered. I just figured that with the amount of gambling, drinking, and womanizing that I plan on doing during the week, I better be in church on Sunday to ask for forgiveness. No one laughed. That hit a little too close to home. (laughs) We scoff at that kind of hypocrisy. Right? We scoff. We say, how absurd. How could someone even think that, say that? We wouldn't tolerate it. We wouldn't do it. Right? Or would we? Perhaps we don't deliberately sin so that God's grace can be displayed again and again. But have you ever sinned, let me just get real broad with that definition, have you ever sinned, done anything, something that you just knew deep down wasn't right? Have you ever done something that you knew wasn't right, and all the while knew deep down that you'd be asking God for forgiveness later? Right in the middle of it. Have you ever done that before? I think if we're all honest, we've all done that before. Right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of losing your temper. And even as those four-letter words come spilling out of your mouth, right in the middle. Right in the middle of claiming something on your income tax that you knew wasn't actually a business expense. Right in the middle of gossiping about someone and slandering them behind their back. Right in the middle of looking at that seductive picture with lust in your heart. Right in the middle of cheating on that exam. Right in the middle of it. You know that it's wrong, but you keep going anyways. Why? Well, why not? He will give us his unlimited grace again anyways, won't he? And doesn't the Bible say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? And so I'll just keep on confessing, and he'll just keep on forgiving, and I don't have to change. Of course, we know that in the long run, it's not good for us. But like the leaky tire, it seems easier to keep accessing the free and unlimited air of God's grace over and over again than it is to address the root problem of sin head on. And so we compromise today knowing we'll confess tomorrow. 
German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He talked about this very thing, and he referred to it as cheap grace. Listen to how he describes it. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. He wrote those words in Hitler's Germany of the mid-1930s, but he as well could have been writing to the Church of Canada today. We love to be forgiven for our sins. I do. I love being forgiven. But I absolutely hate giving them up. Most of us do. We love to be baptized into a church family and enjoy the love and warmth of fellowship, but we hate to be held accountable by that same family. In fact, the fear of offending someone has become so great that it has by and large paralyzed church leadership and individuals alike from addressing sin in fellow believers, and so we just keep leaking air and leaking air and leaking air and coming back to the pump again and again and filling up and wondering why we're struggling to make it down the road. Let me be perfectly clear. If this is our view of God's grace, then we have misunderstood it as badly as the old farmer who mistook a chandelier for a musical instrument, if not worse. Because while God's grace is free, it is unlimited, It is not cheap. It is not cheap. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 tell us this. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. What was that price? Acts chapter 20, verse 28 tells us that God purchased the church with his own blood. That is the price. We were bought at a price, and the price was God's own blood. Free? Yes. Unlimited? Absolutely. But cheap? No. Never. It cost the author of life his life. It caused the one who breathed into Adam the breath of life to take his last breath and surrender his spirit. It caused the one who thought of and then created blood and its circulation through the body as the life-giving flow of all creatures, great and small, it caused him to drip by drip, drop by drop, one ragged heartbeat at a time, to shed that blood on a dusty, rock-scarred hill, on a cruel instrument of torture and execution. That is the price of grace. That is what it cost. God's grace is free, it is unlimited, but it is not cheap. Therefore, it is not something to be taken lightly and abused like free air at a gas station. Paul makes this painfully clear when he answers the question in Romans 6 verse 2. He asks the question, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And listen to his reply, verse 2, By no means! Did you catch it? Is there any wiggle room in there? He put an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. By no means. God forbid is another translation. We died to sin. How can we keep living in it any longer? 
confessing our sins and repenting from our sins are not the same thing. Are you aware of that? Most of us are, but we need to hear it again. Confessing our sins and repenting from our sins are two separate things. They're linked, but they're not the same. Let me explain. While growing up, me and my brothers would get into fights from time to time. Now, I know this is hard for you to imagine, okay? So you just have to take my word for it. This did happen in our household. I know, it's hard to believe, right? Four brothers, we just got along, sang kumbaya, and held hands most of the time. But once in a blue moon, we'd get into a fight. So let me just paint a picture for you. Hypothetically speaking, of course, this probably never happened. But hypothetically speaking, one of them could have looked something like this. Out of nowhere, I give one of my brothers a charley horse, punching him right in the side of the leg. You know, right in there. That's a good spot for a charley horse. And just give him a good stinger. And while he's still howling and wincing in pain, I say to him, hypothetically speaking, of course, Oh, I'm sorry, did that hurt? And even while he's still howling, I give him another one right in the shoulder. Oh, did that hurt too? I'm sorry. (laughs) Hypothetically speaking, this might have happened once or twice. And hypothetically speaking, I would probably then have felt a stinging pain in the side of my own leg as another brother snuck up behind me, gave me a charley horse, and then asked the same question. Oh, did that hurt? I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sure none of you could ever imagine a scene like that. But you see, we're all using the language of confession. We're all acknowledging that we did something to hurt the other person, and so we say the words, I'm sorry, but then we right away do it again. What was that confession worth? (laughs) It wasn't worth the air that was used to say the words. I'm sorry, did that hurt? We kept saying the words, using the language of confession, but there wasn't any repentance. Why? Because the behavior didn't change. You see, confession and true repentance would have meant that we would have stopped inflicting pain on each other. It's only been in our adult years that we have actually repented from inflicting Charlie horses on each other. Mostly repented. (laughs) Confession is the first part of repentance. But if we only say the words and don't change the behavior, we're just letting off hot air. We may be fooling others... We might even be fooling ourselves, but we most certainly are not fooling God. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Paul is talking about repentance, not confession. He is talking about a complete change in behavior. We can't go on living in sin if we have repented of it. We have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. A new life. Not just a tweaked version of the old one. A brand new life. Listen, my friends, listen clearly. Grace is not given to enable you to live the old life. Grace was not given for that reason. 
Grace was not given to enable you to continue to live like the old man. Grace is given to enable you to live the new life of the new man, of the new creation in Christ Jesus. Listen, anyone can live the old life. Anyone can. In fact, everyone is living the old life. But only those who have received God's grace and are living in the daily reality of God's grace, only they can live the new life of the new man in Christ Jesus. And that's what we all want, isn't it? When we get right down to brass tacks, every last one of us, that's what we want. We want to be the new man. We want to be the new creation. We want to live it out in reality, in our everyday thoughts and actions and words and deeds every single day of the week. It's what I want, and I'm pretty sure it's what you want too. Free from the chains of the old man, the bondage to sin, free from the addiction to it that keeps dragging us back and dragging us down. To be free from the shame of it and the guilt that's always wearing us down because of it. To be really and truly alive in Jesus and to have Jesus really and truly alive in me. That's what I want. And that's what you want too. I know it. But it seems so impossible, right? Like Jesus walking on the water, it seems impossible. We've tried so many times and failed. And it feels like I, I've, I've been on this treadmill before, again and again and again and again. And it feels impossible. And it is. It is impossible. Maybe not what you wanted to hear. But it is. It's as impossible for you to live the life of a new man as it is impossible for a dead man to come back to life. But it happened. Jesus didn't stay in the grave, right? He came back to life, and that's what Paul is linking this whole thing to, that just as Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but came back to life through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Both of those things seem impossible, but one of them happened, so the other one can too. That is what Paul is saying. And he says that now in Christ, through the glory of the Father, just as he enabled Jesus to come back to life, he will enable you to live free from sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Free from the slavery, free from the addiction, free from the sin. Quite simply, you now have the freedom to reckon yourselves, therefore, consider yourself completely dead unto sin. And now listen to this and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. You know, I've had Christians tell me about the sins they've been struggling with, and then they've said something like, I just couldn't help it. I had no choice. I just had to give in. I couldn't help it. And you know what? We may feel that way sometimes, but if you're a Christian, let me tell you this. You can help it. You do have a choice. You don't just have to give in. Because before Christ, that was true. You had no choice. You had to give in. Sin was your master. Before Christ, you had no choice. But after Christ, let me tell you this, after Christ, you can help it. You do have a choice because he is the new master. And new masters now call the shots. And the new master gives grace that will enable you to do exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 6, 11 to 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body 
so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Powerful words, profound words. And notice he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Paul is conceding that Christians are still capable of sinning. He concedes that point. Christians are still capable of sinning. But that the hallmark of the new life is that we won't be controlled by sin any longer. Okay, think of it this way. The old man before Christ is capable of doing good. Okay? Any old person without Christ is still capable of doing good. But it's not the norm. It's the anomaly. It's the thing that's out of place. Because the essence of his inner self, the inner self without Christ, is not characterized by good. It is characterized by darkness and selfishness. So even someone without Christ, whose inner self is characterized by darkness and selfishness, they are still capable of doing something good, but it's not the norm. But the new man with Christ, while still being capable of sin, sin is now the anomaly, the thing that's out of place. It's not the norm. It is no longer the essence of the inner self, because the inner self with Christ, oh listen to this, the inner self with Christ, the new essence empowered by the Holy Spirit, is not darkness and selfishness. The new essence is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the description of the new inner self with Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, and you feel as though sin and not Christ is reigning in your inner self, in your inner man, Paul teaches us that you don't have to stay that way. Stop offering yourself to the old master. Stop offering your body to the old man as an instrument of wickedness. Instead, offer yourself completely and and unreservedly to the new master. Stop abusing grace as the means to keep living the old life and just get off your duff and start using the unmerited favor of God's grace to live the new life of the new man as a new creation, as an instrument of righteousness, as a radical follower of Jesus Christ, a world changer, because that is what we're called to be. What is the greatest sin for the Christian? I've often pondered this question. What is the greatest sin for the Christian? Well, if you want to get real brass tacks on theology, probably someone would come up along with along, along the lines of blaspheming the Holy Spirit because that's put in there as one of those almost, un, you know, the, the, the doctrine around the unpardonable sin, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But, but really, when you get down to that, what, what is that really? The greatest sin for the Christian. I believe in a very practical sense the greatest sin for the Christian is loving ourselves more than loving the Lord. Loving ourselves more than loving Him. How is this manifest? How do we do a checklist on our own hearts? It's really easy, actually. 
Every time we worship having more sleep on a Sunday morning than being in church to worship God, we are betraying ourselves. Every time we pick up the TV remote at the end of the day, instead of our Bibles, and the dust builds up on the shelf, we are betraying ourselves. Every time that we say we will tithe when we have more money and go out for lunch after church, go out for lunch after church and we go and buy some toys during the week, we're betraying ourselves. Every time we, we choose to play instead of pray, blame instead of bless, get instead of give, fight instead of forgive, we are betraying ourselves. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and so we think about this, and then we, we turn the corner in our minds for a second, and then we say, but wait a second, Danny. You're getting just a little too legalistic here. Are you saying i got to do all this stuff to get God's grace? No, that's not what I'm saying. Hear me clearly. You and I don't need to do any of that stuff to get God's grace. You're right. But let me reply that God gave you his grace so that you will do all of those things and much, much more. God's grace is not given so that we can get to the lowest denominator, to the baseline of my minimum responsibility to God. Oh no. God's grace was given so that we can find the maximum top limit of what we think we're capable of giving to him. And then he says, and you can still do a little bit more. That's what grace is about. It's not about finding the lowest rung. It's about finding the highest rung. It's not about saying, what's the minimum I can do as a Christian to get by and still be okay in God's books? Because if that's what we're doing, we're abusing grace. What did Jesus say? He said, those whom the Son has set free shall be... What? What? I like that answer... But you know what we often say? Those whom the Son has set free shall be kind of free, except for that one habitual sin. That one's really got me stumped. They, they shall be free uh, to abuse grace until I slide home free into heaven. Uh, I'll be free on some evenings and most weekends. Is that what Jesus said? No. No, he said, those whom the Son has set free shall be free indeed. Free indeed. Completely free. In John 8, verse 36, Jesus said that. And what is that freedom intended to be used for? Well, Jesus said this of his future disciples. Listen to this. You will do even greater things than I have done. <laughs> Not the lowest rung on the ladder. No, no, think a little bit higher. Jesus said of you, you will do greater things than me. Jesus walked on water. <laughs> what are you going to do? Because Jesus said, I'm going I'm to set you up. I'm going to empower you to do greater things than I did. And think about it. Those greater things have been happening for 2,000 years. Because listen, Jesus got a ragtag bunch of 12 disciples and 70 maybe. And at the time of Pentecost, 120 tops. That's all Jesus built. 120 followers. And since that time, tens 
of hundreds of millions of Christ followers have been called in his name and the gospel has gone out into every nation on earth. Wow, you want to talk about greater things. That is what we are a part of. And that is what we are called to continue to be a part of. Think about this for a moment. When we think about Jesus coming into our lives, how big of a difference does Jesus make? How big of a difference does Jesus really make in your life? Is following Jesus just a life enhancer? A life enhancer? You know, is having Jesus just like, like an A-plus version of life? You know what I mean? Like everyone else is about a B-minus, B-plus, and I get Jesus, now I'm A-plus. You know, it's just a little bit better. Is he a life enhancer or a life changer? Is he like having a nice accessory on your outfit? Is he like having a good insurance policy so that at the end of my life I can cash in? Or something else altogether? Think about this. Do people without Jesus only have life a little bit worse than those with him? Is there any discernible difference between those who know Jesus and those who don't? For real. Is there a difference? Do you notice a difference? Let me give you one small example. A couple of weeks ago, one of Leanne's co-workers just casually came into the office talking about her married daughter, who already has children, choosing to abort the last child because it's just too inconvenient. It's her body, after all. Casual. No big deal. Just talking about it. That might put a chill down your spine. That might give you that cold, cold feeling in your heart. It may shock you, but it most certainly doesn't shock the predominant view in the culture that we live in every single day. Because it's her body. It's her choice. No big deal. Let me ask you, how much would knowing Jesus change that mother's perspective on her unborn child? How much? Would it tweak it just a little bit? Or would it revolutionize it, flip it upside down? She needs God's grace, not just to enhance her life, not just to make it a little bit better. No, she needs Jesus to flip her life upside down and make her a new person. But who will tell her? Who will show her? And you know what? There are hundreds and thousands and millions of people like her today And I'm not talking about Vietnam. I'm not talking about Papua New Guinea. I'm not talking about Africa. I'm talking about Canada. I'm talking about Manitoba. I'm talking about Killarney. These people are right here. And if we as Christians continue to treat the free and unlimited grace of Jesus Christ as something only to be taken advantage of so that we can keep living in sin like the old man, if we keep treating it as though it was something as inconsequential and unimportant as free air at the service station, then not only will we remain in the status quo muck and mire of a frustrated and unfulfilled life, wondering why we've never been able to fully break free from the grip of sin, not only will we have to answer to God for why we didn't count ourselves fully as dead unto sin and alive unto Him, 
But then the people around us who are still groping their way in darkness, blind to Christ, their inner selves filled with darkness and selfishness, they are going to stay that way. And you know what? I'm here today to tell you that that is unacceptable to me. It is unacceptable for us as Christians to sit here and say, that's okay, because we're going to heaven. It is unacceptable, and I hope that it is to you as well. I want to give you this final thought, and I'm going to close with this. Our church's motto, our mission statement, our purpose for being here, stares us in the face every Sunday. It's right up here on the walls. We look at them. We've probably begun taking them for granted because they've been there for a while. It says a few neat things, and we probably don't even think about them anymore, but they're core to who we are. They say, serving with our hands, loving with our hearts. Hmm, what does that look like? What does serving with our hands look like? You ever thought about those questions? What does it look like in your life, in your context? What does it mean to serve in a practical way? How are you doing that? Loving with our hearts, in your family, in your workplace, what does that look like? How are you doing it? How are you living it out? In our church, in our Sunday school classes, as we, as we converse with each other in the coffee shops, what does loving look like? How are we expressing it? Showing Christ's love. Bottom line, that is what it's all about. Are we taking that seriously? The love of Christ is the cross. It is the message of salvation that changes the world. Are we getting it out there? Are we embodying it in our lives, self-sacrificially? And finally, is God's family growing? Are we being a part of it growing? Because, my friends, if, if these things are just nice ideas that we're going to look at on a Sunday morning and say, oh yeah, I love it, we're, we're good with that, but we're not doing them, then we're missing the mark, we're missing the boat, we're sleepwalking our way through this. But today, we can, we, can, we can change all of that. Today is the day that we can resolve to be different. That serving with our hands, loving with our hearts, showing Christ's love and growing God's family, today is the day that we stop thinking of those things as nice ideas and start living them, embodying them, praying them, practicing them, no more excuses. Today is that day. Today is the day that we choose. Are you ready to choose? Are you ready to decide in your life? Because it starts with you. Don't look at the person next to you. It's you who has to decide for yourself. Will you choose today to be that day? No more excuses. No more saying, I'll do it next week, next month, next year when I've got it all figured out. Is today the day? I'm going to invite you right now, this moment, to think about that question. Would you bow with me? Lord, we come before you and we search our hearts. And we ask you to search them. Because honestly, Lord, we're deceptive when we search ourselves. We don't, we don't search ourselves completely, wholly. We, we search our own hearts and, and we don't like digging into the corners to find out what's really there because we know we won't like it. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, come in, search our hearts. What's there? What's there, Lord? Are we, are we really loving you 
with all of our souls? Are we loving you with everything that we've got? Or do we know deep down that we're loving ourselves more because our choices are showing it? Oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, oh Lord. We not only confess this sin and go back out to live the same way that we came in, oh Lord, today we say we repent of this. We turn away from it and we declare that we offer to you our bodies as instruments of righteousness for you to do with as you, as you please, as you see fit, as our new master. Forgive us, O Lord, for abusing grace as a means to keep living like the old man. O Lord, enable us today by your Holy Spirit to take hold of your grace to enable us to live out the impossible life of the new man in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, this is your desire. This is what you have made possible. The thing that seems so impossible to us, you have made possible. And today we declare that it's true. And we receive it for ourselves. And so, oh Lord, I can't do this for anyone here. And so I just pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, anoint each one by your power in Jesus' name right now. Would you anoint them, oh Lord, and convict them to give themselves completely holy and unreservedly to you. To say, today is the day. Today is the day. No more excuses. We give ourselves to you, O Lord. We reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive unto you. O Lord, dispel the darkness within us and around us. May your light shine in so abundantly, so brightly, so clearly that, O Lord, this world around us would be changed and that the light of your love would shine. O Father, I pray for that mother who is thinking of aborting her child. O Lord, I pray that you would intercede, that you would intervene, and that, O Lord, you would use us, someone, anyone, to speak into that life. And Lord, that's just one example. There are hundreds of others around us that we all are connected to, that we all know, who desperately need you. Oh Lord, we have the hope and the truth. May we be those instruments to speak light and life into those situations. Not to just make lives a little bit better, but oh Lord, to turn them upside down. To bring them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Because that is where we want to live this day and forevermore until you come. May this be what we set our hearts and minds to. We resolve it this day. In Jesus' name, we all said, Amen.